This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we're here to become better habitat managers. Welcome back, everybody. It is the end of January almost. Hope you guys are you know, getting some habitat projects checked off your list in terms of maybe some chainsaw work, some hinge cutting, some TSI, opening up that canopy. Now is a perfect time if you're not covered up in a bunch, a bunch of snow. Um, we had a bunch and we lost a bunch and now it's just a sloppy mess. But hey, it's it's chainsaw season. It's habitat season. I see deer on the HP40 moving in, um, eating the treetops, you know, that we cut a few trees out there. They're eating them up. Uh, just some camera location stuff. And man, it's that time, guys. So wanted to bring you another awesome podcast here today. We have my good friend, Corey Sullivan, out of South Central Minnesota. Uh, we don't have enough Minnesota guys on here. And Corey's a friend of mine. He's a supporter and listener of the podcast. He's also a contributor on the Habitat Podcast YouTube channel. So if any of this podcast, you want to put some eyes on the property and you want to see some of his projects, Habitat Podcast on YouTube, and you'll see Corey and his videos he's made of his projects so far. We're going to continue that project and you know, bring more and more videos from Corey in South Central Minnesota. We talk about his move from New York to Minnesota, um, finding the correct forester and or logger. You know, if you have timber that needs to get cut and it's not valuable enough, well, when there's a will, there's a way. So Corey made that happen. Um, talk about some tree planting, some food plotting. Then we get into CRP. He's putting a bunch of his tillable property into CRP. So, guys, 
an awesome eight point. I'm sorry, it's a nine point he shot, I believe. Nice Minnesota buck. No, it's an eight point, big eight point. And man, we tell that story here too. The loggers cutting trees all hunting season. Well, where's he got to go hunt? Find some, find some public nearby and made something happen. Uh, guys, awesome podcast again. Corey Sullivan, South Central Minnesota. We're gonna get into it with him here next. We'll have a few words from our partners. Um, I want to thank everybody who's been leaving us great reviews on the Habitat Podcast, Apple iTunes, and also on Spotify. I know uh, you can't really type out a review on Spotify, but you can leave a five star review. Thank you, Bruce, who emailed me today about it. I appreciate that. I will still send you a decal if you're leaving us great reviews, five five star on Spotify, wherever you listen. Let them know. So thank you to those who have done that. I want to thank our partners, and we're going to hear from a few of them and get right into the show. United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties, Downburst Cedars, Morse Nursery, Packer Max Cult of Packers, Vitalized Seed Company, Tagged Out Seed Products, Stealth Outdoors. First Light and Latitude Outdoors. This podcast is brought to you by Latitude Outdoors. Guys, Latitude Outdoors is one of the top saddle hunting manufacturing companies in the world here headquartered in Michigan. Guys, I've worked with Kevin, Alex, the guys over there at Latitude. I've been using their products for over three seasons here at Habitat Podcast. The first deer I shot was that big, that first big buck on the 15 acres out of my method two saddle. That buck, I shot him out of the out of the saddle using the climbing sticks, the platform, everything to get up. And that saddle is just very versatile when selecting a tree. It's the first time I hunted that tree on the 15 acres. I climbed up that day and was able to make the shot and a follow-up shot on that buck in that saddle. Guys, the saddle is so easy to use. You literally strap it on like, like a seat belt, like a belt. It's all ropes. There's no metal components. There's no tinging and banging and clunking. I wrap it around. I step into it. I cinch it down and I'm on my way out. You know, I also use their carbon speed series climbing sticks. I got those brand new this year. I've been using those all over bow hunting and gun hunting from public land to private. Very lightweight, easy to carry, stackable sticks. I ended up putting cell strips on mine and using daisy chains. They compact very well, hang out of the bottom of my pack. And when I'm wearing the Method 2 saddle, I can easily pick any tree in the woods and hunt. Guys, if you're looking for a way to outfit your property without spending $200 per stand, like I'm gonna do on the on the new 40, I'm gonna prep a bunch of saddle trees and keep the deer guessing on where I'm sitting. They will not know my true stand location because I will not have one. Guys, saddles are very versatile. I urge you to check them out. Latitude Outdoors. Again, I've been using them for years and they are great products. Latitude Outdoors, thank you for supporting the Habitat Podcast. We are joined today by my good friend, Mr. Corey Sullivan. Corey, how are you today, man? I'm doing pretty good, Jared. How are you doing? Good, good. Appreciate you hopping on. I know uh, good to talk some some Minnesota deer habitat today. I'm excited about it. I've been watching uh, your projects on our YouTube channel over at Habitat Podcast, and and we haven't caught up, so it's good to catch up today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. I'm uh, looking forward to it. I've never done this before, so it's a treat to be here with uh, with you guys. And uh, yeah, give this a try. See how it turns out. <laughs> I think you'll do just fine. You've you've listened to the podcast for. For quite a while, right? So you know how it operates. Yeah, yeah. I actually, your podcast is what got me started in doing my own habitat work and stuff. Um, I was down in Florida at flight school 
several years ago, I guess it was 2017-ish, and um, I was away from deer hunting and stuff for a couple of years, just trying to get my life together. And um, I'd, yeah, I just stumbled across your podcast because I was trying to figure out what else can I be doing? If I can't be deer hunting, what else can I be doing? That'll help me in the future and learning about deer hunting and ran into the habitat page and stuff. And um, yeah, just decided to put, uh, put my mind to work when it came to the deer hunting stuff, since I couldn't be doing it, um, you know, physically. So yeah, just uh, tried to learn as much as I could. And again, your podcast came around and you, know, you guys were just normal normal Joe Blows, just kind of getting into it yourselves, and that really lined up with me, and um, yeah, just started becoming a religious listener and trying to learn as much as I could about this stuff, so. Oh, man, thank you very much. Hearing stories like that uh, truly never gets old, man, truly doesn't, Um, and I guess the whole reason, you know, why I started doing this, you kind of, you kind of hit something there that brought me back, you know, the fact that we can make our properties better, like we can actually improve the deer hunting. That's always, you know, growing up, I didn't, I didn't think about that type of stuff, you know, hunting the public land and everything else, but, um, yeah, no, it, it never, I mean, you know, I had, yeah, I had family friends that would throw a food pot in here and there and stuff. And we're, we're diehard deer hunters, but you know, this, the whole being able to manipulate things and make the deer do what you want and make the land better for the deer and wildlife in general was just never really on my radar. So Yep. I'm uh, very glad that I found you guys and, you know, just started learning about it all. Well, heck yeah, man. Let's let's talk about, you know, I mentioned Minnesota, but let's talk about your beginnings. You know, you're not you're not from Minnesota, as far as I know. Um, so yeah, let's nope. let's tell your story. And, you know, you, you're you've been a hunter all your life. Let's hear, you know, kind of how you got into that. Some traditions and maybe, you know, your, your background when it comes to hunting. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in um, the Finger Lakes area of uh, upstate New York. It's kind of central western New York. Um, you know, there's a decent amount of ag, good amount of, of um, you know, woodland up there. And I actually didn't really get into hunting until I was in my teenage years. My dad hunted as a teenager and a young adult, but as life got crazier, you know, he just kind of fell out of it. So no one really in my immediate family were hunters and um we ended up having a neighbor down the road that was pretty hardcore into it um deer hunting bow hunting and um you know he's the one you know he'd do a couple food pots and stuff like that and um he kind of took me under his wing and um at that same time my dad kind of got back into hunting a little bit because he wanted to be involved with me and you know in general and um yeah so just kind of learn from the neighbor down the road and my dad as much as he could. And, um, yeah, I got started in New York. I think you could start bow hunting at 14 years old. So started bow hunting then and was deer luck, lucky enough to shoot my first deer, my first year ever of bow hunting, you know, and, nice. um, yeah, get, you know, everyone around me is telling, you know, it might take a couple years, you know, especially with a bow. It's just, you know, it's, it's not easy. And, I just got lucky, really. I, you know, I found an old wooden stand that someone else had put up who knows how long ago, climbed up in it, and a year and a half old five point came by at 20 yards, and that was pretty much all it took. Um, I've been completely addicted since then. Um, so, 
yeah, like I said, you know, not never really into the habitat food plot, that sort of stuff, you know, at that young age, it wasn't even really on my radar too much, but I was filling as many tags as I could fill, shooting whatever walked by, you know, throughout my teenage years and stuff. And, and, um, you actually probably don't know this. Maybe we talked about it, but that actually led me to going to college for wildlife management and biology. So I have a bachelor's degree in that field. Um, wow. I didn't know that. From a, yeah. From, yeah. From a school in, uh, upstate New York, SUNY Coble skill, I'll give a shout out to them. And, um, yeah, so that kind of just continued my passion for it all. I attempted to get into the field professionally after I graduated, but I don't know. I just wasn't really feeling it, and I grew up with my dad being a, a professional pilot, and I decided about a year after I graduated college that I wanted to be a pilot. So moved to Florida where there's a flight school down there. My sister was living down there at the time, lived with her, and learned how to fly, and like I said, I couldn't really be hunting being in the Clearwater area of Florida, so I just <laughs> decided to start learning as much as I could about deer. You know, deer biology, deer, you know, habitat, how deer use the landscape, you know, and stuff like that. And my my college, you know, my schooling definitely aided in uh, what's a good way to put it? It, I mean. You know, you learn like trees and plants and soil and that sort of stuff in college. You don't learn how to hunt. You don't learn how to, how to, you know, do the type of habitat work that we're talking about. But it definitely gave me a good baseline of, you know, just wildlife management in general, I guess. And, um, yeah, I found your podcast. I found some YouTube channels. And just uh, three years that I lived in Florida, I just soaked up as much information as I, as I could with the hopes that one day I'd be able to put it to use, you know, once I kind of got life started and could have some land of my own and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, that, um, yeah, that all turned into my wife and I moving back to New York and buying some property and starting my, my habitat management career, I guess. So, okay. So quick question. When you were in Florida, did you, did you ever drive South and go hunt pigs? Um, no, I didn't. I did a little bit of turkey hunting on just some public land and had okay. some um, some run-ins with pigs that weren't the most fun run-ins. <laughs> you know, literally in the dark, stumbling into what I'm sure was sleeping pigs and scare the crap out of me, that sort of thing. But no, I didn't. Besides a little bit of turkey hunting in the springtime, I didn't really. My schooling was six to seven days a week, so I was pretty much fully uh fully focused on that so i didn't get too much time to go do anything else yeah i think i might have a slight heart attack if i stumbled upon sleeping pigs in the dark in the woods um i mean yeah i mean i i literally walked into a pig and it squealed <laughs> and took off and i probably squealed and took off the other direction and you know, pigs can be aggressive, especially if they're threatened and stuff. So I didn't really know what, what was going to come out of it. But luckily, they just kept going and so did I. But yeah, it was interesting for sure. Okay, so how long did you guys own land in in New York? And how was the hunting in New York? Uh, yeah, so we own 70, like three and change acres um, nice. for four years, almost, almost exactly in upstate New York. Um pretty um you know hilly terrain a lot of ravines and gullies um i'd say maybe not quite 
I'd say probably like 30, 40% agriculture and the rest was, you know, hardwoods with ravines, you know, and hills and ridges and stuff like that. And, um, my area of New York, um, I would say was pretty darn good for deer hunting. You know, I mean, I didn't have really anything else to compare it to. I had never really hunted elsewhere, but you know, I mean, I typically every year would have the opportunity at, you know, 110 inch or 110 to 130 inch deer, you know, or I'd have pictures of one every year, you know, but that was kind of the caliber of deer that were, um, you know, if you were looking for a respectable deer, you could find those types of deer. Um, there were, you know, people shooting 180 inch deer, not obviously not around every corner, but, um, those deer are definitely possible in upstate New York. Um, but I'd say, yeah, you know, that two and a half, three and a half year old, hundred to 125 inch buck was, was pretty much the, the target animal. And, um, it was pretty hard to come by anything better than that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, overall pretty decent hunting. We had really high deer numbers. So like every year I would get four or five deer tags. Um, and, um, yeah, when we owned our property in New York, um, that was kind of my start. I think that was 2018. That was my start to the habitat management stuff. And, you know, I kind of just went all in with that. It was the first piece of property I had ever owned. And, um, yeah, just, trials and tribulations and trying to figure out how to do things and what works, what doesn't work and all that. So that was, that four years was a good, you know, learning experience for me and just kind of trying to figure out the basics, figure out, just figure out how to even get started with something like that. So it was, it was clean slate property, you know? So, um, yeah, that's, that's what New York, my New York property did for us. Um, kind of get the ball rolling with the habitat stuff, which was a lot of fun. So real quick, what do you think your maybe top one or two things you learned out of your first four years, you know, in New York as a habitat land manager? Um, I definitely learned that um, one thing that I try to do is be really familiar with the species of trees, brush, you know, um, that sort of stuff. Just be generally familiar with, with what my habitat had and what was good for deer and what was bad for deer. Um, so I think that's very important. Every person should do their best to learn that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, nowadays there's an app out there called picture this. I think you pay $20 a year for it, but you literally can take a picture of tree bark or a leaf or a flower or whatever. And it'll tell you exactly what kind of plant it is. Um, and then you can just Google, you know, if deer like it or not, you know, and so on yep. and so forth. So that's kind of how I, I, I did have some knowledge from college when it came to plant ID and stuff like that, but I hadn't really messed around with any of that for eight years, you know, since I graduated. So that app picture this and, and just walking around the woods, trying to figure out what deer like and what deer don't like. Um, I think that that was pretty beneficial for me. Um, how can you cut down a tree or hinge a tree or whatever if you don't even know are deer going to eat this when I do hinge it? You know, <laughs> are is me cutting down this oak tree, you know, potentially messing up acorn production in the future? You know, that sort of stuff. So I think it's good to know that sort of thing. Um, I would say the biggest thing that I learned in that four years, especially the first couple of years, is I was trying to do everything. I was trying to plant trees. I was trying to have logging done. I was trying to plant 
you know, brush, I was trying to create bedding. I was trying to plant food plots. I was just overloading myself. And I realized pretty quickly that all those things I was doing were, I wasn't getting the results I wanted because I was just trying to do too much at once, you know? Being um, burnout almost. I my, yeah, being burnout and just like the first year, you know, um, there's a company I just, I think found it on Google or something, Cold Stream Farms. So you can buy a hundred red osier dogwood whips for, you know, a dollar a piece. And I, I, I bought a few hundred of everything, you know, <laughs> hazelnut, oh, yeah. ro- red osier, dogwood, um, you know, just all kinds of browse species and little trees and stuff like that. And I got myself a dibble bar and I just started planting all this stuff. Well, I didn't mark where I was planting it. I tried to do it semi-strategically, but to this day, I don't even know how many of those actually survived. I wasn't caging them. I wasn't keeping track of how they were doing, you know, and I think I would have been better off, you know, being more strategic about it. And instead of planting 250 things, maybe planting 25 things, but paying more attention to the entire process and, you know, maybe trying to protect them a little bit or planting them inside a down tree top so that they're kind of naturally protected, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, I just overdid it, you know? Um, and oh, yeah. I was still learning, I was still learning how to do it all. So I wasn't necessarily doing it all correctly, you know? Um, so I'd say that was my biggest takeaway. Um, especially in the first couple of years of owning that property was, just trying to do too much at once for sure. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, cause that was an amazing answer. Like we have to realize, and I'm, I'm guilty. I've done what you've done. I've already done it. I I've been there. Um, it's to realize that this is totally a marathon and, and not a sprint. And I know it's cliche, but you know, if you can do things a little bit more high quality with a little bit more intention, uh, protecting things more so than, than not, like you mentioned, you know, all these things are going to add up and compound over time. Then when you get five years on the road, you're going to look and be like, oh, heck yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so it's it's really easy to, especially when you're ordering trees, to to get in over your head, um, for lack of a better term, and just realize, oh my gosh, I have 50 trees I need to get fenced and tarped and mulched and and everything else, um, let alone the expense. So yeah, I'm, I'm learning over time how to better uh make better choices in certain directions um and maybe more of a process uh than than just going throw everything at the wall and hoping something sticks right yeah for sure and i think that's i guess you know i'm i'm at least attempting to mature in that way you know um yeah um, easier said than done (laughs) yeah absolutely you know life gets crazy so you know i mean you got a half an afternoon put 25 trees in the ground and you know, whatever, hopefully they take, but you know, I just realized that if, okay, if I do four trees and higher quality trees and fence them and stuff like that, those four are going to turn out better than the 25, you know, ever will just because my intentions are, are more thought out. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, I used to buy a bunch of trees uh, you know, younger trees go more quantity is better, right? Quantity over quality. And yeah. now I'm 
the opposite to where I'm saving my money, I'm buying the oldest trees I possibly can and trying to skip a couple of years. And first of all, in, in survival, trying to keep that tree alive with deer and drought and everything else. Um, and then uh, just better odds of, of having, you know, a fruiting tree sooner. So I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, so, for sure. So tell me, so, how did you get over to Minnesota now? I mean, New York sounds so great. 73 acres, a bunch of deer. Some good 120, 130-inch bucks running around? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess essentially, so I met my wife when I was away at white school. Her and I are both pilots um, in the airline cool. world. And um, she is actually from kind of south-central Minnesota. That's where she was born and raised. That's where her parents still are, friends and stuff. And um just kind of decided that if we wanted to stay in the airline industry, when we were in upstate New York, we were having to commute to work, which would take half a day of our own time on either end of our trips to get to work and whatever. And um, yeah. Minneapolis is a, a big hub for the company that we work for. And we could work out of Minneapolis. And instead of, you know, having to take half a day to travel to work, it's, you know, right down the road pretty much. Um, and closer to her family, we wanted to start a family, and it was important to her to be close to her mom and her dad. Um, so from a career standpoint and a raising a, fam a family standpoint, moving to South Central Minnesota just seemed to be the, uh, the best answer. And it's the Midwest where big deer live, so sign me up, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's obviously like I'm 45 minutes from Iowa now take that with a grain of salt because there are not 180 inch deer behind every tree in northern Iowa and it's not as easy as that but I mean I'm close to big bucks much closer to big big deer you know and big deer states here in the midwest than I ever was in upstate New York so that sounded I mean big change for me because I left all my family and friends and whatnot but um it brought me closer to something I'm passionate about and we're able to start a family which um, you know, I've always wanted, so it was, it was a good move for many reasons. So here we are in South Central Minnesota. All right. And I mean, that, that all makes sense to me, you know, raise a family, be close to the parents. We're not close to my parents, uh, or her parents where we live now. And man, it's a pain in the butt sometimes. So, uh, all that makes sense. And especially the traveling, the commuting to even begin working as a pilot, my neighbor, my old neighbor here was a pilot. So I understand, um, how that works and. Yeah, so it all makes sense. Um, now, let's hear about the property in South Central Minnesota. I have an aerial that you sent me. Uh, you've done some videos on the Habitat Podcast YouTube already where people can see this if they'd like. But give us a little breakdown of what it looks like. Um, and, you know, all yeah. I remember is you were catching walleye on your property within like the first week of living there. And I was like, sign me up. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. So South Central Minnesota um, is like predominantly flat ag land um it's kind of cool the minnesota dnr website breaks down like every hunting unit into um types of cover and stuff like that and i'm looking at that right now online um the area that i live in is 70 79 percent um crops so a huge um portion of it is agriculture 1.6 percent woody cover so essentially no woods 
Um, and then the rest, and then the rest is, or there's 12% grassland and wetland, which, you know, is either swamps and CRP and stuff like that. And the rest is, you know, like 6% developed land. Um, so essentially there is all fields and no cover, um, here in South central Minnesota. The only cover is wetlands and river bottoms. Um, and we just happen to find this piece of property here. It's right along a river. Um, it's 53 acres. Um, 18 of it is tillable that has been actively farmed for uh, probably for its entire existence. But um, but yeah, and then the rest is river bottom woodland. Um, generally flat and um, predominantly cottonwoods, soft maples. Um, I have a couple burr oak trees, like literally two or three on the entire property. Um, and, um, you know, underneath the, I guess the understory is, you know, your typical kind of grass, land, um, river bottom stuff, you know, kind of a mix of grasses and, you know, herbaceous growth. Um, but I mean, but pretty much wide open with that, with the cottonwoods and, and stuff it's pretty much wide open forest you know um you can see hundreds of yards in either direction so so yeah yeah 53 acres total and our house is on the property it kind of sits smack in the middle of the property the driveway comes up from the south but it's i guess it's kind of a big square um the north and west border are a river and that river doesn't run straight so you know just imagine kind of a squiggly line for our north and west border being the river and um the whole northwest side is woods and the southeast 18 acres is um where our tillable is and my house kind of sits right in the middle um right on the edge of the tillable with the woods being to the to the west side of my property um so yeah, it's great, great walleye fishing, like you mentioned. I mean, the river froze last winter, and literally 200 yards from my back door, I ice fished and could catch a limit of walleye in a couple hours pretty much every time I went out there, which was kind of crazy. Um, but I'm not complaining one bit. It's definitely pretty sweet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, when you sent me those videos or those pictures of that, I'm like, what? You catch a walleye? You know, and you can get that in your yeah. yard. So you're closer to bigger deer or better better maybe um just just size in, in general maybe due to some some regulation for iowa and, and minnesota and then you have you know better working environment you're closer to work closer to the family and you catch a wall in the backyard i don't see a reason for uh not moving to minnesota at this point yeah man i'm i i cannot complain one bit um definitely very very blessed with uh where we're sitting right now for sure so so talking more about your your property 53 acres um at first glance i'm looking at it it's kind of like your driveway almost splits the property in half. And then to the east, just for, for folks listening who want to kind of picture this, to the east, it's a, it's a lot of tillable, kind of a big open field. You have a tree line out in the middle of that field, it looks like. And then to the west, it's kind of more that the woods, the river bottom, um, almost like a couple oxbows. Like you live and then off to the, yeah. in the woods are like different oxbows of this river. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's yep, your actually... thought on, on setting that up? You know, what, what comes to mind? Um, so initially, um, like you said, the house pretty much sits smack in the middle of the property. 
but it kind of creates a pinch point between the river to my north and, yeah. you know, kind of the outbuildings of my, of my house, of, you know, of kind of the farmstead here, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. so the deer can get from West where the wooded property is to the East, um, behind my house here. Um, and they actually do it regularly, but I wasn't really sure how that was going to play out, but, um, Either way, um, one thing that, you know, I've learned throughout the last few years of doing this is I want to start projects that take, I guess, the longest amount of time to complete and then the longest amount of time to start seeing results. So, you know, my property was full of humongous cottonwood trees and maybe as you know, stuff there, you know, a browse species, but they're not doing anything for wildlife. Um, they have huge tops on them that shade out the understory and stuff. And um, so my first goal kind of was to have some of that harvested if I could find someone who would harvest cottonwood, because that's not necessarily a favorable species for wood mills anywhere. Um, and um, get get uh, a lot of the uh, larger timber out to open up the canopy and get sunlight to the ground and just let things start thicken up because as you know on your northern 70 um sometimes the hardest part is just finding a logger to do the work that's willing to do the work and can do it in a timely manner you know um let's let's talk about that let's i want to hear how you how you found that because you are one of many listeners who have mentioned and reached out you know i have cottonwoods nobody wants to cut them what do you know what do i do um so that this yeah, would be so, an awesome point to cover yeah yeah so i guess i can't really say this for other states but the minnesota dnr has an amazing website with i mean resources out the wazoo in so many ways um i you know, I just tried Googling local foresters or local, um, well, I actually had a, uh, a Minnesota state forester come take a look at things. He said, yeah, there's harvestable timber out here, but good luck finding someone to cut your cottonwood. Um, and I said, well, could you look into it? And, you know, I mean, they, it was hard for them to find someone to do it. So what I did is I just started, I just found on the Minnesota DNR website, a list of like, I don't know if you want to say certified, but just a list of wood mills that do business in Minnesota. And I found the 10 closest wood mills and I just started calling them. Hey, I've got a bunch of cottonwood that I want someone to buy. And, um, obviously it's not a, you know, it's not a favorable species. So, you know, do you guys cut cottonwood? like, you know, mill cottonwood, or do you know someone that would? And I just started calling you know, all the semi-local wood mills and eventually found one that um, they do a lot of pallet making and supposedly cottonwood is a good wood for pallets because it's not really good for anything else. Um, and that wood mill actually hooked me up with my, my logger, um, a logger that has okay. worked for them for, for years um, so I kind of went backwards, I guess, how most people would do it, but I tried to go the normal route and just didn't seem to have too much success. So yeah, I found the, 
the mill that would saw it and work backwards to the logger that would actually harvest it. And um, yeah, so I guess this time last winter, it was me doing my homework, trying to figure out how to get this, um, you know, my woods um, logged. And um, pretty soon after, um, my dog's barking, we're having a building built and contractors are pulling in. Oh, you're good. So yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so contacted the for or the logger he came out take, took a look at things and um you know obviously being river bottom it needs to be dry enough for him to even do the work so it was winter time he pretty much started right away but as soon as um things started to thaw out and the snow melt in the springtime um we got some pretty serious flooding here in south um minnesota um the closest city to me reported worst flooding they had seen in like 50 years or something like that. Literally out of my 53 acres, um, probably 45 of it was completely underwater. Wow. Um, my entire, yeah, my entire wooded land was underwater. Um, and pretty much the only thing that stayed dry was the land or the ground that my house and our outbuildings sit on and then everything south of us to the roads. But the water was right up literally to the back doorstep. Um, and um, that was scary, especially newly owning the house. Like, great, we're going to flood this place out. The first few months we we own the place, um, you know, and just not knowing what to expect from <laughs> that. Um, Jeez. But that, yeah, but that took months to dry out to a point where the logger could get back in there. So he really didn't get back in until maybe mid-summer, and he was a single guy operation, so, you know, a little bit slower than than having multiple people in there working, but he pretty much cut, he cut cotton. What I actually have a pretty decent amount of black walnut on my property, which I kind of think is my saving grace, because um, that may, definitely made it worthwhile for the logger to be here, too. Um, but, yeah, so he pretty much cut all summer. Yeah, so he cut all summer and pretty much all through deer season, and he finished up like mid-November. So essentially, my entire deer season, the first deer season of owning the property, there was a guy in there with a chainsaw every day. Which you know, that's that's part of this habitat game. So that's just how it goes, and I know that it will benefit me for years to come. So that's just you know part of it all. This episode is proudly presented by Stealth Outdoors the maker of stealth strips. Guys, I met Lou over at the Deer Hunter podcast, bow hunt we did, deer camp we did earlier this October. And I gotta say, his products stand out as being the top quality silencing gear I've ever used and the top many of my friends have ever used. These stealth strips are great products you can put on your tree stands, your climbing sticks, anything you want to silence as a mobile hunter. But here at Habitat Podcast, we don't always mobile hunt. We have some blinds set up, some stands set up. I'm using the cell strips for other things. I tend to knock my wedding ring on a ladder stand. Remember I hit a ladder stand. That's not a bad spot to use a cell strip. A gun blind, the shooting rail, you set your gun or anything out on the rail. A cell strip is a perfect spot for that. We're actually coming out with a shooting rail strip for Habitat Podcast listeners. If you have a metal ladder stand and you pull the shooting rail over your head to sit down, a perfect spot to put a cell strip. Guys, there are so many uses for a cell strip and many people have not even heard of this product, but once they hear about it and they use it, they put it on everything. That's just how it works. Talking to Lou, 
that's what he's told me he has different options you can have a hawk helium stealth strip a beast stealth strip and my favorite the latitude outdoors climbing speed stick stealth strip kit guys cable silencers you can cover everything with this material there's a bark silencer we can cover the bark on the tree to keep you quiet he even has his own camouflage designs over at stealthoutdoors.com guys big things to come from lou sl strips working here with the habitat podcast we're gonna have him on the podcast coming up and can't wait to introduce you guys to these awesome made in the usa products stealthoutdoors.com tell them habitat podcast sent you we are proudly partnered with Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Guys, I've been working with Chad Thalen and the Midwest Lifestyle Property team for a long, long time now. Um, MLP is one of the top three brokerage in the UC network. That's the United Country Network. There are approximately 600 UC offices across the country. Chad and his team here in Michigan are the guys you need to get a hold of if you're looking to buy or sell property in the great state of Michigan. A couple of his new agents. We have, well, not new, you know, Lincoln Roan over in West Michigan. Brandon Hammonds, a brand new agent for the UC MLP team here. Alan Messing, another great agent. We're going to be hearing from these guys in the future about what they can offer. Their agents are real land pros. It is their lifestyle. They sell $150 million in land each year and nationwide they've sold over 25,000 acres in the past two years. Pretty wild. Chad and his team at the Michigan Midwest Lifestyle Properties are here to help. We have a link in the show notes for you. MidwestLifestyleProperties.com, another great place to find out more. If you are interested in listing or purchasing a property here in Michigan, click the link below. Tell them Habitat Podcast sent you. Well, I'm proud of you for making it happen. So just like the Northern 70, just like the 15 acres and, and everybody else that I talked to who, you know, we, we may have a hard, a hard job. It may not be the, the easy picking for the logger, right? Uh, flat ground up in the Northern 70, um, big enough ground or, or valuable enough timber. Uh, way, way to make it happen. Way to call and continue to pursue until you found somebody to do it. Even if it's during hunting season, you're seeing the forest through the trees, as Al always says. You're you're seeing the goal, um, and you're making it happen. So nice work on that. And I would I would urge any other listeners who are finding themselves in a similar situation, keep calling, keep looking. You will find somebody eventually um, to, who may even do it for free, but they'll do it. So. Yeah, as long as you, I mean, maybe some people, you know, have different ways they want to go about it. But I mean, my whole thing through the entire deal was even if we break even and I don't see a, a check from the from the logger, like at least it all got logged. It didn't cost me anything. And, you know, obviously the logger would take, you know, whatever was left over. But um, I just didn't want to have to do the work myself because I don't have the equipment to want to have to pay to have it done so i was just hoping to break even in the whole ordeal and um yeah it just ended up working out for me so you know i'm the 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 logging part i'm a, a pretty serious advocate of you know i think that i would say that most woods you walk into should have timber harvested i would say there's very few pieces of property out there that you know already have the understory that you want and and that sort of thing and because you know it took a year for the harvesting to get finished and now it's going to take another two three four five years for it to really thicken up where i want it to be you know that 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 was something that i wanted to get done right off the bat and um 
I think that it's probably one of the most beneficial things that you can have done to your property because from five feet down, that's where the deer eats and that's where they live and hide. And if you don't have any cover or food down there, then you're not really offering the deer too much. So I think, I think there's something on uh, like the National Deer Association's website. Like if you can throw a tennis ball 40 yards and see where it lands, your woods are not thick enough. Now, obviously your entire woods don't need to be exactly that, but that's, you know, generally speaking, you know, you just want things to be thick for the deer, especially if you have hunting pressure. And I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of cover where I'm at in Southern Minnesota once the corn and the beans are harvested, you know, that the corn and the beans make up 80% of my total cover and, or the, just the total landscape. So as soon as that's harvested, the deer have nowhere to go. And right. I just wanted, I wanted my property to be their safe haven, you know, cause no one else around me has that and they're going to need somewhere come deer season. And why not have them be on my property during deer season? That seems like a pretty, pretty good deal. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I know we talk about it all the time, but, um, you know, getting getting these hard projects done first, you know, like my whole Northern 70 kind of hinged on having this logging done. I don't want to go plant a bunch of apple trees in there and have, you know, big maples crashing down on them. Um, and like your, your piece, we talked about, you know, kind of helping you come up with a game plan for your property. And uh, I mean, looking at it here, um, you know, as like all these land plans we do, I'm thinking on your oxbows, you know, that's where the bedding is going to be. The big timber cut, the the bedding, the regrowth, right out on those river bends, you know, to your north and to your, yeah. your west. What, what are you thinking on that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, generally any wooded area around here is some form of cover for deer, um, but there's not really too much of it. And like in my hunting area here, um, we have a gun season that starts like this year, it started November 4th and it runs for like 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And in my hunting unit, you get one deer tag, one deer tag, the entire season. And my understanding is it used to be only a buck tag, but now it's on like an either sex tag. So you can either put a buck or a doe. Yeah. So, um, and I would say like most areas, you know, the, the most amount of hunting that happens is during gun season. Um, and they only have a 10 day season. So if someone wants to shoot a deer for the freezer, you know, if they're not out there looking for a mature buck, they're going to shoot whatever walks by. Um, and you know, if you zoom out on a map and look at my property, there being very little cover, I just kind of decided that cover is going to be my most important, um, aspect. Um, given what I have here, you know, in South Southern Minnesota, that was my most important aspect. Um, and late season food. Um, once the beans and the, uh, corn is harvested, you know, October, November ish, you just took pretty much the entire dinner plate out from under the deer that they've been enjoying all summer. And they're not left with a whole lot because there's not a whole lot of woods for woody brows and stuff like that. So cover and late season food is kind of my focus based on what my surroundings, you know, have for the deer. So, so yeah. Yeah. You have no lack of tillable, um, in the surrounding areas, uh, your, your own ground, even you have a good chunk of tillable. Let's talk about what you're, what you're doing with the tillable, uh, and the, and the contract opening up. Yeah. Yeah. So the tillable, um, 
I guess we can just say that it's a big square of tillable and there's a peninsula that runs from the south from the river straight south and splits it almost in half but doesn't but doesn't completely go all the way across that tillable um it's 18 acres and um you know everybody is in different situations everybody has different goals but um my reason for owning property is to make it the best deer hunting I can possibly make it um so rental income and that sort of thing not really high on my priority list but um no it's it's not a very popular thing in New York and I never even looked into it in New York cuz I didn't have um any tillable history on my property in New York but um the CRP program um is something that I started looking into I called the local USDA NRCS office had someone come out just to look at my killable and just teach me about the CRP program because I wasn't familiar with it. Um, they, you know, because I had like cropping history, I think it needed like seven years of cropping history or something like that to even um, qualify. And, um, but yeah, I could, because I have, I, I, I might not be totally accurate with this, but you need a minimum of 10 acres. But if that 10 acres is attached to to wildlife habitat, you don't need 10 acres. So if you've only got seven acres of tillable, but it's attached to woodland that is wildlife habitat, it can qualify you even if you have less than the 10 tillable. Um, luckily, I did have the 10 tillable, um, and I didn't want it all in CRP because that limits your food plot, you know, options. Um, so what I decided was I would just do 10 acres, which is kind of the minimum 10 acres. Um, I'll enroll in CRP and it's the 10 acres on the south side of my ag field borders, the borders, the main road here on the south side of my property. So, um, still working like on the contract and stuff like that. There was a new farm bill that, um, came into play, I guess, end of 2023 that, um, you know, just slow things down from, you know, an approval standpoint and just getting things actually through. Um, but yeah, so the south side of my tillable there is all going to be CRP. And um, yeah, it's just going to be a mixture of, you know, forbs and grasses um, okay. with, yep, along the, so along the road on the south side of my property, which if you're on that road, you can see my entire tillable. I mean, anyone could drive by and see a buck back along the river, poach from the road, you know, whatever. So the 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 reason behind bordering the road with the 10 acres of CRP is, you know, that'll grow five, six, seven foot tall, create a visual barrier. Um, and then 10, it's 10 acres of food and cover for pretty much all wildlife, turkey, pheasants, deer you know the deer will definitely use the crp for bedding and um and food um but then that leaves the northern half of my tillable up against the river that i can do whatever i want with as far as food plots and concern are concerned so nice. um that'll be like another yeah, so eight, I, eight acres of food or whatever you do in there correct yeah yep 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 eight acres of food and one thing i didn't know about the crp stuff is 10 percent of your 10% of what you have in CRP can be used for food pot and they will cost share the installation of the food pot, everything. So um, a very small portion of the CRP um, will be in food plots um, that the CRP program is going to pay for, which is nice, but it's only like one acre. Um, but yeah, 
my hope is to plant the rest of it in um, kind of a mixture. I'm probably going to do, or, you know, rotate in and out corn and beans just because they're both really good late season food and um, the Vitalize one-two punch. Um, I started using Vitalize two years ago now. It takes all the thought process out of it and um, is Al's a great guy to work with. You guys are great, you know, great company to work with. And it's just worked really well for me. Um, both spring and fall planting because I've had great success with. It's very easy, you know, and um, you don't have to worry about rotating this and that. And, you know, it, it just takes all the, the, the thought process out of planting your food plots, which is like, gets crazier, just works for me. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's that's the plan with uh, the remaining eight acres is just to do a mix of corn, beans, and vitalize, you know, really trying to have a late season food source for the deer. So come November and December, um, when the winter really starts to turn here in the upper Midwest, um, the deer have that food because everything else has been harvested, you know, around me. So that's that's kind of the thought with with my tillable acreage there. I mean, it all makes sense. Your property is going to lay out, honestly, pretty, um, that's what I'm looking for, pretty, pretty simple. Uh, you know, nothing too insane, you know, what I'm looking at or how I would set it up. You know, I love yeah. how you're talking off that, the road, you know, it's, that's, that's great. I'd love to understand what plants are in that mix. If you do know, um, like how tall that mix will be. Uh, the CRP, um, yeah. no, my understanding, just talking with, um, just talking he actually he actually just called me while we were on this podcast my nice. um the the guy from the nrcs but um it's i know that they are trying to include more forbs instead of just being a um a, a grass only blend um yeah. you know to 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 provide a food aspect for wildlife instead of only cover um so it's going to be a mix I, we haven't even looked at the mixes yet because I haven't even been approved yet because of this new farm bill passing and stuff, but it's going to be switchgrass, you know, big blue stem, little blue stem, um, and then all sorts of forbs, which are going to include, you know, some wildflowers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it'll be a good mix of, if it's anything like other CRP I've seen around here, you know, it's going to get five to seven foot tall, you know, maybe taller in some places, but still have that really good um, forb, you know, stuff underneath that is also food amongst the grass, you know, the cover that the grass offers. So, okay. And how, how hard was it to get enrolled in this, in this program and, and start to start to finish? I know you're not finished yet, but how, yeah. Um, how much time not is it very hard. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the local NRCS office is 15 minutes away. Um, the, the, the guy that I've been working with is actually from the East coast and he just moved out here himself and he loves deer hunting. So he kind of knew where I was coming from, knew what I wanted and was an advocate for what I was trying to do. Um, you know, the CRP program is, is essentially just the federal government trying to turn some tillable back to habitat for wildlife and erosion control and stuff like that. But some people that work for the NRCS and USDA, you know, they, they don't have the wildlife habitat, you know, mindset that we do as much, you know, 
um, or the same goals that are white towel specific and so on and so forth. But this guy did. And, um, yeah, he, he was really easy to work with. I could text him, call him, whatever. Um, but pretty much what we did is we just took an aerial map. Okay. Where do you want the CRP? This is what it's going to look like. This is the approximate, um, you know, the nice part about the CRP program, which many people don't know about is you get a, a payout every year for your acreage, you know, a certain dollar amount per acre, um, that you're just going to get a check for every year and they will cost share 50% of the cost of having to put in, you know, having to plant the CRP. So, yeah. um, that's awesome. Do you, what yeah, what so is that, it was, Corey? Are you able to share what the value is that they're that they're going to pay you? And if you're okay, um, I think being like, yeah. So my my tillable here isn't like um great for this area of Minnesota okay. because it's river bottom. It's a sandier soil. Um, but it's going to be around two hundred dollars an acre. Dang. And wow. ten acres. Yeah, ten acres. So what, two thousand dollars a year? That, yep. that I mean, that's I, I'm just going to reinvest that into the property. You know, it, that will probably pay for my food plots. Um, yeah. You know, um, so it's just getting reinvested into the property. So hopefully, you know, it's just going to reduce my overall out of pocket costs, and um, I might be losing out on a little bit because if I had that rented to the farmer for corner beans, you know, he he would probably give me a little bit more. But that's not money isn't the priority for me, you know. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's worth it, it's going to work out. It's going to be sweet. Yeah, you're winning on both ends. You're getting cover. You're getting more food and Forbes. You're blocking off the road. You're still maintaining uh, some income, uh, which can go towards food plots yeah. or taxes or whatever else. And you're taking advantage of a free program. So um, that's a win all the way around in my book. Yeah, man, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty pumped about it. Like I said, it wasn't really, uh, I'm sure it existed in New York, but I hear, you know, in the Midwest, I mean, CRP is a term that hunters and, you know, habitat managers say all the time. And, you know, you can pretty much drive down any road and see the CRP that this farmer's got planted and that and whatnot. So it's just much more prominent here in the Midwest. Um, which I think has made it easier for me to, um, to learn about and get involved in. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped for it for sure. Sure. Well, good on you for, for getting that done. I think, um, you know, you had the logger, like you mentioned in there throughout deer season last year, we, we had the same thing up North, uh, didn't stop the deer from, from showing up. They were in there every night after he go home for the day, but, what I'm curious about, you went and hunted some other ground, some public ground, yeah. and and had some success. I want to hear this story because I haven't heard it from you yet, and I'd love to hear kind of you know why you did what you did, where not where you went, GPS coordinates. You can text me that later if you'd like, but pretty much, yeah. you know, kind of what was going through your head and why you were switching gears and and kind of tell the story, man. Love hearing these. Yeah, yeah, man. So you know, um, coming from the from upstate New York, I, the properties that I hunted in upstate New York were family friend properties that I had hunted private property for essentially my entire hunting career. You know, I they were pretty decent properties. I had the opportunity to shoot some nice bucks there. Um, so I never really strayed from private property in upstate New York. Um, I did some turkey hunting on public and whatnot, but um, I'm for all intents and purposes, never deer hunted on public property um, up until now. Um, moving to the Midwest opens up the opportunity to travel and hunt some really, really good states 
you know, within just a few hour drive. And so I kind of wanted to start the public land hunting thing and even traveling to other states and stuff like that. But I figured, well, if the forester is going to be on my property or sorry, the logger is going to be on my property all fall long, you know, who knows what that'll do to the deer as far as hunting is concerned. There's a decent amount of public land around me. So at no better chance than now, you know, it's, it's, it's a new area for me anyways. So I don't have any other private land to hunt. I don't have knowledge, you know, any local knowledge like, oh, you know, over on this road, deer, you know, normally every year there's big deer or whatever. So it was kind of a clean slate and I just decided no better time to start my public land hunting than, than now. And, um, yeah, man, it's, you know, I don't know coming from, you know, if you, you Google the worst deer hunting States in, in <laughs> the United States, New York state pops up in the top five, you know, um, I personally disagree if you're in the right areas, but that's probably like most States, but I didn't really come from good deer hunting from a big buck, um, you know, from a big buck perspective. And I didn't really know what to expect out here in Minnesota. You know, obviously, um, I've got Wisconsin to my east, Dakotas to my west, Nebraska and Iowa and Illinois and stuff to my south. So there's obviously going to be big deer, but how many, where are they? You know, it's just all different. It's a different landscape for me to hunt and stuff. So I didn't really know what to expect. So pretty much all spring and summer. No, I turkey hunted on public land, which would turn into scouting missions, you know, trying to find, you know, just deer sign and all that sort of thing. I just did a whole lot of scouting in the spring and the summer on public lands. And um, luckily, conveniently, I don't know how you want to put it, but our baby was born on July 29th and um, I was given three months off um, as like parental leave. So I essentially had all... Yeah, nice. I had all fall, all fall off um, till the middle of November. So, you know, I did some early season hunting um, on the public land and stuff, but really didn't get into it too aggressively until like that last week of October. And um, I bounced around bec- between a couple spots, um, but I went into one spot. It was more of just a scouting mission on um, like the 27th or 28th of October, um, a nice CRP area, um, with some woods, some kind of low land swampy areas. I kind of just went in there on a scouting mission and, um, just to see what it looked like. There was still some standing corn on the private next door. So I was just trying to catch the deer moving from essentially that CRP and swampy area out to the, the standing corn that was still remaining. And, um, like right at dark, I had a pretty nice buck, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, it was hard to tell exactly what he was, but about as big or bigger than any buck I had seen in New York came through, worked a scrape at 35 yards. And instead of coming down the trail that walked right past me, he turned 90 degrees and kind of walked quartering away from me. And I never got an opportunity um, to, uh, to get a shot at him. So that piqued my interest and kind of He didn't, uh, the wind was in my direction, you know, it was in my favor and everything. So he had no idea I was there. And I just, you know, kind of said, okay, I'm definitely coming back to this spot. Um, And let's see, that was like the 27th or 28th on the 31st. So Halloween, 
Um, we had good wind um, for that spot. Okay, so one thing that I've been doing, do you ever listen to the Working Class Bowhunters podcast? Yeah, now and then, yeah. Yeah, so I was listening to a podcast of them. It's probably been a year to an hour, but they kind of deemed this thing, they call it the whiskey wind. And it's essentially hunting with the wind in the deer's favor, but it is just at an angle that it's also in your favor. So the deer's coming from wherever they're coming with the wind in their face, and you're just offset of their, their travel path. Yeah, you know, quartering, just quartering enough. Wind, just off wind. Yeah. yeah, I'm familiar. Yep. Yeah. So, and working class, they call it a whiskey wind. So that's just nice. what I call it. I don't know why they call it that. Whatever. Yeah. But um, so I have been trying to hunt this whiskey wind for pretty much this whole season just to see how it worked out for me. And um, even a few days prior to seeing this buck in this spot, um, I was hunting a different area and had a really fun encounter with like 130, 135 inch eight point um just didn't quite come close enough he was trailing a doe and whatnot but this whiskey wind thing seemed to be working for me pretty well so the first night i saw this buck on the 27th or 28th the wind was in his favor i was just off enough that it was in my favor too i just waited for that same exact you know wind and um you know weather in general for us in the midwest it was nice and cold um, during that last week of October, northwest winds, which is pretty standard with the colder conditions. And um, yeah, uh, Halloween was the next day that the conditions were very similar. So I went in there. I actually ended up getting in there a little bit late. I can't remember why I was a little bit late, but I couldn't even climb into my tree when I got there because the doe were just piling past me. And it was still, you know, two and a half hours before dark, but doe were just piling past me. So I was literally just sitting at the base of my tree, watching doe walk past, just crossing my fingers that a big buck wasn't right behind them. Um, sure. Eventually they kind of cleared out whatever, gave me the opportunity to climb up in the, in the tree, the same tree that I had been in and um, a couple of days prior. And I mean, that same activity continued. I think I saw like six or seven deer that evening uh, or six or seven bucks that evening, a handful of doe. They were just coming from everywhere, going everywhere. It was just, I've never shot a big buck on Halloween, but everyone raves about it, you know, and I can see why. I mean, you know, it's just close enough to the rut that deer are just moving, especially if the weather's right and whatnot. Um, and actually kind of a funny story. I had like 120, 125 inch nine point that was on the other side of me. So I'm hunting out of a saddle. Um, I've just gotten into saddle hunting. This is my second full year doing it, but it's a little yeah. bit different than hunting in a tree stand, you know? Um, but I had a nine point come in like 120, 125 inch nine point come in on my off side. So I was all turned and torqued around in my saddle and everything getting ready to attempt to shoot this deer. Um, I'm not one to pass up 120 inch deer on public land, especially my first year ever hunting public land, <laughs> not a chance. Um, but, um, but yeah, so he came in on my off side. Um, and I was fully prepared to shoot him. Um, he was just eating kind of coming up the edge of a swamp, just browsing on some things, taking a sweet time. And he was at like 40 yards and I came to full draw on him, but I wasn't really intending to shoot him. I was just kind of practicing and getting myself ready for when he did come closer. Cause like I said, he was taking his time and it was gonna, it was gonna be a while anyways. And I was at full draw looking at him 
and I heard a twig snap behind me where that scrape was, is, you know, um, that that buck hit a few nights prior. And while I was still at full draw, I looked over my shoulder and the buck that I ended up shooting was standing there at that scrape at like 35 yards. And I was at Man. full draw on my off side, which is hard to get switched all the way around. Um, so I had to let down my bow and get my bow passed between me and the tree in front of me, get turned around on my platform. And that whole time, I don't even know how he didn't beat me, but he was just working that scrape. And, um, I got myself all turned around and he left that scrape. And instead of turning the same direction, he went a couple of days prior. He came, I mean, right up the trail, right next to me at like 18 yards. I mean, picture perfect by chance and I was able to draw he stopped on his own I didn't have to do you know I didn't have to man him to stop him or anything like that it all just happened naturally and let her rip and yeah man I watched him go probably about 60 or 70 yards and tip right over um wow um got got really lucky with the shot and um double long heart shot so he didn't go far and um I still didn't really know just because of how it all played out. I didn't really know what, you know, I was, how big he was. I just know that he had a nice frame. He was a mature deer. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I made, you know, the standard phone calls to my buddies, just trying to get myself calmed down and everything. And, um, yeah, got down. This was still well before dark. This was probably an hour and a half before dark. So climbed out of my tree stand and went and, um, just kind of started walking towards where I saw him go down because the arrow actually stayed in him the entire time. I could see my Luminoc, even when he fell over, I could see my oh, Luminoc sticking up out of the grass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, walked the 60, 70 yards to where I had seen him fall over and there he was. And um, I mean, just a beautiful, symmetrical 137 to 140 inch eight point, you know, just heavy, darker antlers just a beautiful representative of what I consider an amazing deer. You know, people from the Midwest, probably there's a lot of people that would probably let that deer walk by, but you know, that's, he's my second biggest buck. And I was just ecstatic, especially to be able to do that on public land. My first year here in Minnesota, I mean, it just made me feel so good about everything, you know, making a big move to Minnesota and everything. It just, it just felt really good. You know, I felt like, hey, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to do something right here. You know, maybe I'm figuring this all out. So it was, it was awesome. I, I wish I could go do it again tomorrow. Well, congrats on, on that deer and heck of a story. Um, you say a lot of people might pass that deer, but I bet even more people would shoot that deer. <laughs> so, oh yeah. yeah, I would, I would hope so. I would hope heck so. Heck of a deer. And, and then, you know, you're getting your habitat done at the same time. Um, have a beautiful new family and man, I'm happy for you. Congratulations. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been, it's been a journey for sure. For sure. It's a hoot though. Without a doubt. <laughs> well, this has been awesome so far. We didn't even get to half the stuff I wanted to, to cover. So I guess you're going to have to come back on. Um, before we wrap this up though, I would like to hit you with the rapid fire questions. If you're ready. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Let her rip. Number one, your favorite beverage. My favorite beverage. I drink a lot of water. Um, but uh, my adult beverage would be right now. There's a local brewery here that's uh, called Shells that just make an awesome light beer, and that's what I've been uh, what I've been uh, favoring recently. Just some local good 
good locally made beer. So I like it. How about your favorite venison recipe? My favorite venison recipe? I think everybody says it, but I got a smoker for the first time like a year ago. And backstraps on the smoker and then to sear them at the end is really, really hard to beat. Um, Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to go with. I just started doing that, man, and I I can't tell you how uh, how great the temperature is when you smoke them like that. Even you know throughout the meat, um, I've been I was doing them on you know cast iron skillet seared in hot oil for the longest time, which is great. But it makes a mess and smokes up the house, and um, yeah, just, yeah, that smoker just helps you. I mean, the whole piece of meat is just really oh, it's amazing. I, I love it. Yeah. Mine has like an extreme smoke setting, which is a low temperature setting, but I just throw mine on, do extreme smoke for like 20 minutes and then crank it up to like 400 degrees. And then it just cooks it kind of like being on a grill, but has that smoke oh. aspect to it. And it's just been amazing. Nice. Uh, are yeah. you running fixed blade or expandable broadheads? Oh man, I, I go back and forth on this <laughs> all the time. In my brain, I say I'm a fixed blade guy. You know, I mean, it's, just the tried and true, nothing should go wrong because there's no moving parts sort of thing. But I'll admit, at least this is my, I guess, analysis on my situation. I don't think I'm like that good of a bow shot. You know, with a field point, I can get out there and be slinging them at 60 yards, you know, whatever, and have pretty good, pretty good groups. But I've tried to, um, you know, tune my bow and tune my arrows and and, and, you know, shoot through paper and all that stuff. And I've just never been really good at that. And so I, sometimes I can't get fixed blades to fly very well, which, um, is, is what it is. So I've been, uh, shooting severs for the last, I think three years now. Um, they're a newer company. You can't buy them in stores or anything. It's just, you know, directly from their website or whatever, but, um, yeah, just a two and a half or two inch, two blade, Sever is the company, and I have had amazing luck with that mechanical broadhead. Very nice. really good to me. Like that buck that I shot this year went through, so it, it was a heart shot, but quartering away just a tiny bit. And so it went through the ribs on one side and through the deer's just main leg, what, the femur bone, right above or pretty much right at the elbow, um, and went right through that and stopped didn't come out the fully come out the other side but i mean a full pass through through a mature buck's bone and here went 70 yards so i i can't complain about that i wouldn't complain one bit about that um what do you do most you said you got into saddle hunting i also run a, a latitude saddle these days and, and saddle hunt quite a bit do you preset stands are you going to do blinds or are you going to go saddle hunting or mobile hunting um up until recently I've been a preset stand guy, you know, that's just, there's just something about sitting in a tree stand, you know, it just makes me feel good inside. But, um, (laughs) I think I'm going to go towards more like this entire season, obviously on public land. Um, the saddle was my go-to and I think probably what I'm going to do is maybe have a couple presets, but I'm going to mostly saddle hunt and just have multiple spots prepared for my saddle setup, you know? Um, maybe a couple field edges I'll actually have, you know, some ladder stands in or whatever. But um, I think I'm just going to bounce around in my saddle because 
everyone has their own opinions, but I just think that a saddle is the best way to go for multiple reasons. I think it's more natural looking to a deer because you just look like a tree limb coming out at 45 degrees instead of a big blob sitting on the side of the tree, you know, and whatever. Um, again, everyone has their own opinion on that, but I think I'm going to do saddle. I, being able to put the tree between you and the deer as it's coming your direction and then just the last, you know, few seconds swinging out and making your shot, I personally think is a game changer. It's just not something you can do with a hang on stand. Yep. And I'm, and I've been toting around my, you know, 15, 20 pound backpack climber combo for so many years, 25 pound, whatever it is. Um, it's just so nice to be able to hike as far as you want without really. Oh yeah. Working. I call it my diaper. I just, I just, I just, yeah, I just throw on my diaper and hit the wood <laughs> with my platform and stick strap to my back and we're, we're off to the races. I, I, it's, it's just much more convenient, especially for the public land hunting. I'm not a big guy. So every little bit of weight I can take off my back is uh, beneficial for me. So great point. Food, water, or cover. What's most important to you? If you had to pick one, you know, I've heard you ask this question a million times and I'm going to say cover. Because if your cover is done correctly, it offers food for the deer. That's probably you one have of the best all that. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, just woody brows associated with that cover is, you know, get two for one if you got good cover. So your favorite habitat tool or implement at this time? A lot of people say it, but a chainsaw, man. I got uh, two chainsaws. I think it's important to have two because you're bound and determined to get one hung up at some point. But a chainsaw. You can hinge cut, you can flush cut, you can do so much with a chainsaw and just getting that sunlight to the ground is so, so important. All right, here it is. Your favorite tree. Final question. My favorite tree, the hemlock tree. Oh, I like the um, answer. Why is that? We d- well, we don't really have any, at least out here in southern Minnesota, but they're a pretty prominent tree where I'm from in upstate New York. And I just had a lot of luck hunting out of hemlock trees they offer really good cover um it's kind of struggling with this woody adelgid stuff you know a disease you know that has a potential to wipe them out so you know kind of i guess makes me sad thinking about that and makes me like them even more and um it's also good cover deer bed underneath them a lot where where i'm from in upstate new york especially come winter time it's a it's a good area uh good thermal cover tree for the deer so multiple reasons i like that tree so much great answer Corey. man this this is an awesome conversation now uh, you did a, a phenomenal job again gonna have to have you back on to cover your your tree planting your food plots um talk about how your crp turns out everything in the future but guys if you want to follow along Corey has been gracious enough to help us with content up at habitat podcast on, on the YouTube channel. So if you're interested, go over there, subscribe. You can see Corey's property already. He has some videos already up there and there will be more to come. Uh, Corey, thank you for doing that. We really appreciate that. And if anybody else wants to help out showing some projects on YouTube, always happy to chat. Um, but let's see, you know, people want to find you or want to plug anything, feel free, brother. Now's your chance. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've just got the standard Facebook page. I, don't post enough on it or maybe that's a good thing but yeah just Corey sullivan on facebook and um instagram as well and like i said i'm just trying to put out some content there for you guys on the youtube channel and whatnot so you might see me there from time to time but yeah awesome well thank you very much man appreciate your time and uh 
good luck this year out in the Habitat Woods. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Always. Yeah, man, it's been a treat. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to come on the podcast here. So I hope you uh, hope you have a good Habitat season and everyone else out there, too. Thanks, Corey. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the, the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further, we have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors, Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear, Packer Max Cultipackers, Morse Nursery, Acres.com, Downburst Cedars, First Light, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.